All right. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'll read it to you again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's as far as we're going to get tonight, unless, unless God has something else in mind. I've already got next week's lesson written, but at the same time, we'll, just, we'll see how far we get tonight with just this one verse. This actual introduction, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, a lot of scholars think that's the introduction, actually, to the whole book. Instead of just being verse 1, they think that's the introduction to the book. Go with me to Genesis chapter 5. And look at verse 1. You're going to see that the introduction, the book of the genealogy, is exactly the same as Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then it goes on, and it starts listing all the genealogies of, of mankind coming from Adam. Not all, but uh, I'll give you an idea of tracing them through. Uh, we couldn't list all of the people that were born from Adam and all that. But what I want you to see is this. You're going to see a parallel tonight and throughout this study of how Matthew is rooted in the Old Testament. Matthew's audience, you're going to see in a little bit, is going to be Jewish, mainly Jewish believers. And Matthew's purpose is to talk about the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who's going to come and set up his kingdom. There's going to be a lot of ties back to the Old Testament. You're going to see some parallels. Uh, some people have broken the book of Matthew down into five segments and five major discourses, like the Sermon on the Mount. And then you've got his teaching on the parables of the, of the kingdom. And you've also got the sending out of the 12 disciples in that whole discourse. They'll see as we go through this study, there'll be times that after a big section, it'll say, after Jesus finished these sayings, and then they'll go into another. And something that, that Matthew tied his uh, five segments of the book of Matthew to the five books of the Old Testament of the law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, and so on. But we see a parallel between how back in Genesis, when God laid out through Moses the genealogy of mankind coming from Adam and how many years to this person and so on, Matthew starts his book the same way. And he's going to lay out a genealogy here at the beginning. But you're going to see tonight that his genealogy is slightly different from the one in Genesis and slightly different from the one in Luke, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, let me also just say something else about Matthew before we really jump into it that will help you. Don't try to read Matthew as a chronological account of Jesus' life. Matthew's purpose is not to just lay out that Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did that. It's not going to lay out chronologically. As you compare, which we will do, the book of Matthew with the other gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and you put together an actual timeline, you'll see that Matthew jumps around. His purpose is not to tell the story of what Jesus did from the time that he was born until the time that he died. His purpose is to show the Jewish believers and some other Jews who weren't believers that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, according to the Old Testament prophecies. And so in so doing, he's not worried about chrono chronology. He's just more interested in telling episodes or stories from Jesus' life that point, bring out his point. So if you try to read it chronologically, it's going to mess you up. All right? But that's the neat thing about having four Gospels of Jesus' life. When you put them all together, you can actually do that. So, all right. Now, notice, though, if you look closely at the verses that are following, in verse 2, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and so on. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage only back as far as Abraham. 
For as you'll see in this study, Matthew's audience is predominantly Jewish converts to Christianity and Jewish hearers. Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, and the coming King. Now, Matthew's authorship of this gospel was never really questioned by the early church. Now, I'm not going to get into this whole study of the Q theory and the Q source and all this stuff. There are those who call themselves, quote-unquote, higher critics who have, over the years, and man becoming wise, tried to say that God didn't write, really write Matthew as much as it was just a source that Matthew quoted from and Mark quoted from and Luke quoted from because there's similarities between their Gospels. And Well, if they're all telling the story of Jesus' life, shouldn't there be similarities? But they try to say that there's some Q source that we don't know where it is, but they all copied from it. No, the Bible says that every word is God-breathed. Every word is God-breathed. And so Matthew's authorship of this book was never questioned by the early church. Actually, there's one of the early fathers named Origen. He lived around 185 to 284 BC, uh, sorry, AD, 184 to 254, try again, 184 to 254 AD. He's quoted as saying, this is what Origen said about the book of Matthew. It says, among the four Gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven, I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was prepared for the converts from Judaism. This is what Origen says about the book of Matthew. Only a hundred or so years after, 150 years after Jesus was on the earth, he said, word has passed on that it was written by Matthew, and it was written for the converts of Judaism. All right? Now, if you'll also notice, none of the other gospel writers put their names on their books. You won't find Matthew saying his name, I wrote this, anywhere. Paul would write his letters, as you know, and he'd start it off with Paul to Timothy or to whoever. But all the gospel writers don't put their names in there. It's a very interesting thing. You never see Luke mention his name in the book of Luke. You don't see Mark mention his name in the book of Mark. John doesn't mention his name. Oh, they describe themselves sometimes because being apostles and being disciples of the Lord, they are going to be in some of those episodes. John always described himself in what way? Whenever he had to mention himself in his gospel. The one whose Jesus loved, the Jesus, disciple whom Jesus loved, but he never mentioned his own name. Matthew does something also that's kind of interesting here in this book to show his humility. Not only does he not say that this was written by him, when he does mention himself, he does something here that all the other gospel writers don't do. Go to Matthew chapter 10. All the gospel writers want all the glory to go to God. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, And he, this is Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, there's Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As he listed their names, what did he do when he listed his name? He downgraded himself. He brought out the fact that he used to be a tax collector, a publican. By the way, if you look at the other gospel accounts of this, where they list the 12 apostles, the other gospel writers would call him Levi by his other name. But they never bring out that he was a tax collector. Matthew put that in himself. He humbly said, oh, and there was this guy, Matthew, who was a tax collector. I want to take a little bit of time right now to kind of deal with that. 
Because there's a very important thing that we need to understand in this day and age. Paul did the exact same thing. Now you say, Jim, Paul wrote his name. Yes, that's true. But Paul would quickly point out to you that he was nothing. Go to 1 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the chief of sinners, as some of your translations say, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You notice how Paul says, look, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. To him go all the glory. See, we have a problem nowadays. I'm going to show you this from Scripture in just a second. We, just like in Bible times, want to elevate the messenger. We want to praise the man that God uses for his purposes. And we have a tendency at times to follow human beings instead of Jesus. All the gospel writers, including Matthew, didn't put themselves out. They just put out Jesus and talked about Jesus. You want to know whether or not the preacher's somebody, you can listen to their preaching and their teaching? Do they point you to follow Jesus or do they point you to follow them? Are they bringing you closer to your walk with the Lord Jesus or are they wanting you to become followers of them? Go to, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This problem erupted. It's in mankind. It's in all of us. It erupted there in the early church there in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 7. Paul said, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we're God's fellow workers as he go on. Look at what he said. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Jim Johnson? They're just people that God used for his purposes. They're nothing. They're just conduits. The glory should go to the Lord. Now, I say this to you because in our churches today, we have a tendency, especially if you've been in a church for any length of time and you've had a bunch of different pastors, we hear people say, well, he was a good one or he was a bad one. 
And a lot of us are in messes right now in our churches because we're looking at the man and we're putting our eyes on the man and whether or not we think he's gifted or not gifted, whether or not he's doing a good job or a bad job. Folks, you want to have peace in your walk with the Lord? Stop looking at the conduit and look at the one who's doing his work. And God even can use donkeys. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all understood, having been with Jesus, that it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. And so be wary of those preachers out there who want you to follow them and their ministry. And at the same time, if you've got issues at your church because you don't think your pastor's this, that, or the other, you're looking at the man. Why are you looking at the man? The one who plants and the one who waters is nothing. It's God who does the work. So I've learned over the years, when I go worship, and by the way, I worship in churches all around the country now. I go there to meet with Jesus. I go there to meet with Jesus. And it makes a whole lot of difference because now I'm not worried about whether or not someone's doing a good job out there. If you're going there to church to say, well, not the leadership's doing a good job, you've already started off on the wrong foot. You're not supposed to be looking at them. You're supposed to be looking at the Lord. And you know what? There are those who are gifted and those who aren't gifted, but God can even use, like I said, donkeys and people like Jim Johnson to get his stuff done. So go back to Matthew. The Jewishness of Matthew will become very evident as we study this book because of many different things that Matthew does in writing this gospel. I'm just going to lay out for you six things that I want you to be noticing and looking for as we go through the study of Matthew. The first thing is, as we saw earlier, Matthew only begins his genealogy with Abraham. Genesis started with Adam. Luke's gospel starts with Adam. Go to Luke chapter 3. Go to Luke chapter 3. Look at verses 22 through 23 through 28. But Jimmy just told us to turn to Matthew. I know, you'll learn soon enough that means nothing. Luke chapter 3. Look at verses 23 through 28. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephat, and so on. If you go all the way down, it goes down to verse 38 and traces all the way down to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke's genealogy actually traces all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham. doesn't go far back as Adam like Genesis does but only goes back as far as Abraham. Anybody have any idea why? He, it, exactly, it's written to the Jews, and as you're about to see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's just tracing Jesus' lineage back to Abraham because the people that he's writing to need to understand that this is the one that was promised to come from Abraham. You say, well... Well, we'll come to that in a second. When was he promised to come from Abraham? I'll get to that in a second. That's the first thing. Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham. Luke chases his always back to Adam. We're going to see later on when we get into the genealogy as well that actually Adam's genealogy chase, traces Jesus through uh, Mary and Matthew's genealogy chase, traces Jesus through Joseph, which is very important. Did I say Adam's? Thank you. Luke's genealogy. Thank you. Thank you. Luke's genealogy traces through uh, Mary. Matthew's genealogy traces them through Joseph. That will be very important later on in our study, but that'll be a week or two down the road. All right? Second thing I want you to see as evidence of the Jewishness of Matthew. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophecies 
concerning the coming Messiah over 60 times. You're going to see that in our study of Matthew. He's going to quote from Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah over 60 times. This would have made no sense to a non-Jewish audience. The fact that he quotes from Old Testament prophecies would have meant nothing to people who had never read the Old Testament. Okay? Yes, he's referring back to. He'll quote from, but he'll, he'll refer back to Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. All right? A third thing that we'll see in our study is this. Matthew cites Jesus' customs without explaining them. He's going to refer to Jewish customs, and he doesn't explain them. The other Gospels, which I'm going to show you a couple of quick examples, when they would refer to Jewish customs, they would then explain the Jewish customs and what they meant and why they did them, because the people they were writing to weren't Jewish. All right? Let me give you an example. Go to Mark chapter 7, and look at verses 1 through 4. In Mark 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then we see the explanation in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All right? They even wash the place they sit. Now, why does Mark bring this all out? Because Mark's audience wasn't predominantly Jewish, and they needed these explanations why the Pharisees were about to throw a fit about the fact they hadn't washed their hands. As you know, back in that day, hygiene wasn't as big of an issue as it is today. Wherever you go, you got the hand sanitizers and all that kind of stuff. If you've ever been on one of those cruises, you know, washy-washy, happy-happy as you go into the dining room. Um, but uh, at the same time, back in that day, people didn't wash their hands like that, but the Jewish people did for ceremonial reasons and all this kind of stuff. And Mark had to explain that because his audience wasn't Jewish. Matthew never explains Jewish tradition. Go to John. Look at chapter 19. And look at verse 40. In John chapter 19, verse 40. <clears throat> so it says, They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. That wouldn't have had to been explained to the Jewish people. That's, they would have known their traditions and their customs. But John wasn't writing to the Jews. John was writing to the Greeks that they would understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, or the Christ, and that he's God. That's what John does a lot. Try to explain that Jesus is not only the promised one, but he's God. And so, again, because his audience needed to have that explained, he explained it. Matthew doesn't do any of that. By the way, you will find the interpretation and correct interpretation of Matthew is going to explode for you in this study when you understand who he's writing to. Because, as I'm going to just show you later on in our study, the church today has tried to read themselves into Matthew a lot. The parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25 and how Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom and he's going to separate the sheep and goats. And how many of us have been taught that that's how God determines which of us are going into heaven? We've heard that, haven't we? By the way, we've given someone water or visited them in prison. Actually, you're going to see that's not referring to the church at all because when that happens, the church has already been raptured. The church has already been taken to be with the Lord. That's going to be how he separates the people that survive the tribulation period. Who gets into the kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth? And so as you really take a look. Now, by the way, you will find that there are some things for the church here in Matthew. Actually, we see the word church mentioned twice in the book of Matthew. 
in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, upon your faith, that's the rock, that profession of your faith, I will build my what? Oh, so the church is mentioned in Matthew. There is stuff here for us. And then in chapter 18, it talks about if you have a problem with your brother, you go see your brother. If he doesn't listen, you bring somebody else with you. And if he doesn't listen to them, then you bring him before the church. So don't think for a second, well, this book was written for the Jews. It's not for us. Oh, no, there's a lot of stuff. We're going to have to learn how to, as we study it, look at the context. Who was he talking to? Who is he writing to? Now, have you ever heard the scripture talk about rightly dividing the word of God? Let me give you one other little tidbit along that line. Put a bookmark here and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you study the scriptures for yourself, not just in our Bible study of the book of Matthew, you will find this to be very, very helpful for you. There is a distinction between the church, the Jews, and the lost world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 32. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Paul says, Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Three distinct groups. There's the Jewish people, and God's got a specific plan for the people of Israel as we've been studying as we went through Ezekiel. And he's not done. He's put them on hold for a while while he's doing this church aid thing. There is a distinct plan for the church, but he's also got a distinct plan for the Gentiles. Those are the Greeks. Those who are outside the church and outside the people of Israel. He's got a plan for them as well. You see it? Very distinct, three distinct groups. For years, people have tried to just assume that God's plan for Israel is now being fulfilled in the church and God's done with Israel. And we've tried to read ourselves into the book of Matthew. But as you've already heard me teach many, many times from many different books, God's not done with Israel. And this book was written to Jewish believers and to converts, not just converts from Judaism, but also Jewish people as well. What was Matthew's purpose? To prove that what? That Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. That's what he's writing about. That's what this book's all about. All right. Now, there's another reason why you'll see in our study that this book is clearly written to Jewish people. Um, Turn my page and it'll be easier to read. Matthew constantly refers to Jesus as the son of David. See in Matthew 1.1? As the son of David. If you weren't Jewish, what would your question be whenever Jesus is referred to as the son of David? Who's David? But they know who David is because he's writing to the Jews. And you'll see that many, many, many times. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. We're going to talk about that tonight. Also, a fifth reason. Matthew also considers the Jewish regard for the name of God by referring to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. This is what's thrown a lot of people off over the years because Jesus, all through the book of Matthew, says the kingdom of heaven. Actually, as you'll see, Jesus said the kingdom of God. But Matthew, knowing he was writing to Jews who would never say God, they would never mention Yahweh or the name of God. And so because of that, if you, by the way, if you have any Jewish friends right now and they email you and you write with them and they even reference God in their emails, if they're devout, They'll do capital G, asterisk, capital D. They won't write God, because in the Jewish mindset, you're not worthy to mention his name. And Matthew, knowing that his audience would be offended by him saying God, actually talks about the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. But I'm going to show you that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the exact same things. I can prove it to you. Go to Luke chapter 13. Let me show you what I mean. 
In Luke chapter 13, look at verses 18 through 21. Jesus is speaking here in Luke 13, verse 18. He, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All right? When we get to Matthew 13, we'll explain these parables in a second. But notice he said, What's the kingdom of God like? What's the first example? It's a mustard seed. All right. And what's the second example of the kingdom of God? The leaven. Go back to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 31 through 33. In Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So Matthew writes kingdom of heaven, but all the other gospel writers call, call it the kingdom of God. Why? Matthew's writing to Jews who would be offended if he used the word God, so he avoids that for their sensibilities. All right, another evidence that he's writing to a Jewish audience. That will also help us, because when we study about Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, is he talking about heaven, or is he talking about the kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because the kingdom of God actually has a lot of parts to it as we look at the scriptures, and we're going to get into all that as well. But mainly the kingdom of God is referring to the kingdom of God that's going to be on the earth, rule and reign by Jesus for a thousand years, that, is, that millennial kingdom we know that is coming. But the kingdom of God is way bigger than that, because the kingdom of God was prophesied in the Old Testament, pictured in Israel. It was also, it's slightly being fulfilled in us right now as he rules and reigns in our hearts. But at the same time, it will literally be commenced when Jesus comes back to the earth. There's a lot about the kingdom of God, which we will get all into that throughout our study of Matthew. All right. But Matthew, whenever you read Kingdom of Heaven, it's actually the Kingdom of God. All right? Now, as you're also going to see in all of, our, all, all of this book's major themes are rooted in the Old Testament, set in light of Israel's Messianic expectations, and Matthew speaks of God's coming kingdom. Anybody want to take a guess how many times in the book of Matthew he speaks of God's coming kingdom? kingdom? 60 is a good guess. A lot's not bad, but I don't know what a lot means. 32 times. 32 times he's going to mention in this book, the coming kingdom. Those of us who have been through Revelation and Ezekiel, I think we're ready because we have a rougher idea about what the kingdom is because we've been studying a lot about it. All right. So like I said before, a proper understanding of Matthew's audience will help us to properly interpretate, interpret this book. You ready? Let's begin. That was the introduction. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm actually going to break this verse down backwards. All right. We see that Matthew begins his book with Jesus' Jewish lineage and that he could be traced all the way back to Abraham. Now, this is important because back in Genesis, go to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God made a promise to Abraham. 
Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, And the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a picture of Jesus, folks. That's a picture there of this coming promised one that's going to come from Abraham. And God, through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Are all the families of the earth blessed because the nation of Israel exists? In a sense, but not in the way that God's referring to. The reason they are all blessed because the nation of Israel exists is because through the nation of Israel, the promised Messiah was going to come. But Abraham was told, through you, all the families on the whole earth are going to be blessed. That means there's going to be a descendant of Abraham that God's going to use to bless the whole world. All right. What did Abraham do that God would do through him? Something to bless the whole world and all the families on the earth? <laughs> Being a man of faith. And he waited upon the promise and the descendants began with Isaac and Jacob and so on. And eventually, as you're going to see, comes Jesus, the one that was pointed to back then. And so the fact that Abraham is, sorry, that Matthew refers to the Abraham at the beginning of his genealogy is important because there was a promise that from Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he traces him all the way back to Abraham. But Jesus was not only the descendant of Abraham, who is he also a descendant of in verse 1? David. That's important. There's prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about this one that's going to come from David. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. By the way, does anybody know who Jesse is? That's David's father. But look closely at what the prophecy says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So there's going to be a, a shoot from Jesse, which is David. And a branch from David is going to bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this branch. And the Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, Spirit of counsel, might, Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord... He, this branch, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here we see this prophecy. A shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to produce a branch that's going to produce fruit. And that branch is going to rule in righteousness and decide the whole, rule over the whole earth. But there's more than just one verse. As you know, don't ever build your theology on just one verse. Let the whole of Scripture speak, and I'm not going to take you to all the prophecies. But let me show you one more. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23, and look at verses 5 and 6. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah says, or God through Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king, 
and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now we get a little bit more information. Remember, Isaiah prophesied slightly before Jeremiah did. They're contemporaries for a little bit of time. But Isaiah began his ministry earlier, and Jeremiah followed after. Isaiah was, God spoke through Isaiah saying that a root from the stump of Jesse is going to produce a branch that's going to rule in righteousness over the whole earth. Now Jeremiah comes and says, oh, by the way, let me tell you what that shoot is from the stump of Jesse. That's David. And from David will be this branch. That was prophesied, and the branch is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness, and he's going to rule and deal justly and execute justice and righteousness in the land. All right? So Matthew is stating that Jesus is, well, go back to Matthew chapter 1. He's a son of Abraham. His, descent, his genealogy can be traced back to Abraham. So that prophecy about this one coming from Abraham in which all the families of the earth will be blessed, it applies to Jesus. But not only does it apply to Jesus, it also shows us that Jesus' lineage doesn't just trace through Abraham, but also traces through David, which makes him fulfill the prophecies of this one coming from David, the branch that's going to come from David. Jesus can fulfill that as well because he is the son of David, and he's going to prove in his book that not only does Jesus come from Abraham, not only does Jesus come from David, Jesus is the what? It's right here. The Christ. Now, that's hard for some of us because we've heard Jesus Christ all our life. But actually, do you know what the word Christ means in Hebrew? Messiah. Messiah. He is the anointed one, the promised one. So what is Matthew saying here in verse 1? He says, Jesus, well, let me just do the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who came from David, like the prophecy said, and who came from Abraham. And he begins, which we'll look at next week, he begins his genealogy from Abraham on down. We're going to break that genealogy down because there's amazing cool stuff in this genealogy. But for tonight, I want you to grasp this. Matthew's purpose is to encourage the Jewish believers and to challenge the Jewish people who aren't believers to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim. If, if Matthew's writing to Jewish believers... Why is Matthew taking the time to prove that Jesus is the Christ? I'm sorry? Definitely other Jewish people could see it, but his predominant audience were Jewish believers. Why is Matthew writing a gospel to Jewish believers who already believe in Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ? Oh, definitely so they can witness. That's a great reason as well. But there's another bigger reason. How many of you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? How many of you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? How many of you, show of hands, have actually received Jesus as Lord? Why do you go to church? Oh, there's fellowship and, oh, but, but don't you hear the gospel a lot in your church? I hope you do, by the way. Remember the song, the old hymn we used to sing, Tell Me the Story of Jesus? Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. And then the song goes on and talks about how every time I hear it, it's more wonderfully sweet. This is an encouragement to them because they're going to be living in a world in which they're going to be bombarded with. Are you sure? What is Satan's favorite line? Did God really say? 
He started that with the beginning. Folks, I want you to understand, through the study of Matthew, we're going to be encouraged as well. Yeah, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, but we really don't. Yeah, we understand enough to be saved, but we're hit with curveballs when people ask us questions sometimes and we don't know what to do, like you were sharing. Eric, there, there's going to be that encouragement. We'll know how to share. We'll, how, we'll be stronger through this. You can think, well, well, he's going to talk about how Jesus is the Christ. I already believe that. Yeah, but you don't. You believe it, but you don't know it. You believe it, but you don't understand it. And this is why we need to look at the life of Jesus and study, because this book is alive. And you're going to see things about Jesus you never saw before. There's going to be aspects of who Jesus is that are going to just encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Not only the things that are to come and what's going to happen in the kingdom of God, but things that will take place in our lives now because there's stuff here for us. And this is going to be a fun, fun study. Go ahead. I, I would agree 100%. I think that's a great point. For those that didn't hear what Jeff just said, he's also, um, there's many reasons why this is happening, but another one could be that they would understand the, the specialness of the Jewish heritage, and this isn't a new thing, but a continuation of what has always been. I think that's great. That's great. All right. Now, here's the thing, though. Most of the Jews missed the fact that the promised son of David would be God himself. Because let's be honest, at this time, that Matthew writes his gospel. By the way, it's around, people believe, right around the 50 AD, be roughly when they think Matthew wrote this. At this time, how much of the church is Jewish? Not, not a lot. I mean, there's some, but not a lot. Actually, the church begins to grow with the Gentile regions under the preaching of Paul and so on. There were Jews that were coming to faith, but they started to experience a hardening as God moved his drawing from the Jews to the Gentiles. And as you know, the Jews, were, a lot of the Jewish Christians were fighting against the Gentile Christians and saying, no, no, you've got to follow the law of Moses and all these different things, and you've got to be circumcised. And there was issues that were going on. Most of the Jews missed the fact that the promised son of David would be God himself. So that's something here that's being said that a lot of people would never see. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We read that and we think, man, man, man. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a man. He's a descendant of David. He's a man. He's the promised one. He's still a man. But Matthew is bringing out here that Jesus is not only a man, that he's God. You say, where, Jim, where? In the exact same passages that I already had you read. We're going to go back to them in just a second. Go to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, look at verses 41 through 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Bookmark, put a bookmark, finger, whatever you want. Go back with me real quick to Psalm 110. Jesus is quoting from something David wrote in Psalm 110 that the Jews would know very, very well. 
Look at verses 1 through 7. As you see there, it's a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A passage that the Jews knew full well was pointing to the coming Messiah who's going to set up his kingdom and wipe everybody out and rule and reign. And they knew it was talking about the promised Messiah. And so Jesus says, who is the Messiah? Whose son? Sorry, the Messiah. Who is he? Who is he the son of? And they said the son of David. They said, well, okay, well, if he's the son of David, how come David through the spirit calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Look at again, back to Matthew 22. Hope you kept your bookmark. Look at verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is dealing with the fact that the Jews have been looking for this promised one, the son of David. He's standing there in their midst, and he says, is he just a man? Well, yeah, he's just a descendant of David. Well, how can he be just a man if David calls him Lord? And They had a little problem with that. I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 11. And let's go back and look at those passages that we talked about that showed that he was going to be the descendant of David all along in those prophecies were hints that he would be God himself. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the people, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, You'd say, okay, Jim, where does this say that he'd be God? Well, there's a couple of things you need to understand. Just prior to this, go back to Isaiah chapter 9. God had already told them something about this one in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6 and following. Verses 6 and 7, we'll just cover those two. Just prior to chapter 11, God through Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. What's the next thing he's going to be called? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So God has already said through Isaiah that there's going to be this child born and he's going to be coming from David and he's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule with righteousness on the earth. Oh, but his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Then you get to chapter 11. And this one that's going to come from Jesse, from David, is going to bear fruit. This one that was already prophesied, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom. By the way, you don't, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles, put a number one above the Spirit of the Lord. Put a little number one. If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, put a number two above the spirit of wisdom. Put a number three above, understand, above the word understanding. Put a number four above counsel. Put a number five above spirit of knowledge. Sorry, might. Number five above might. Number six above knowledge. And number seven above the fear of the Lord. And go to me to Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 5. Actually, we'll back up to chapter 4. We'll come to chapter 5 in a second. Go to chapter 4, verse 5. John's taken up into heaven. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are what? The seven spirits of God. Go to chapter 5 again. Uh, we'll start in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living, elder, living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. How many spirits did this one coming from David have? Seven. This promised one is mighty God. He's not just a descendant of Abraham. He's not just a descendant of David. He's God himself. Remember how when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts pronouncing that the one is coming. He said, he's mightier than I because even though he's after me, he was before me. I want you to stick with me here as we try to bring some of this to a close tonight. Too many Christians even today still see the meek and lowly Jesus. The prophecies didn't just say he would come from Abraham. They didn't just say he would come from David. They said he would be God himself. Folks, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Jesus is in charge. And he gets to call the shots because he's God. When you talk to Jesus, you're talking to God himself. Oh, it's going to be pretty cool when we keep that in our minds as we look at what he does and how he acts on the earth and how he humbles himself and takes the role of a servant even to the, the death on a cross. But God himself came down and took on flesh 
God himself came down. Took, how many of us are excited to be in these bodies? There isn't a one here that we're, we're all like, yeah, we can't wait to get out of them, can we? But Jesus left the glory of heaven to be limited and to take on flesh. It must have felt really good in Matthew 17 when his glory just got to get out a little bit and his tra he was transfigured in front of him. And he even prayed in John chapter 17, Father, renew the glory of my glory that I had before the foundations of the earth. He limited himself and took on a body just like yours and mine, and he humbled himself because he loves us. But how many of us are living still for ourselves? Oh, we're thankful that we got saved and we're going to heaven, but we'll call the shots from here on. We'll get mad at him if he doesn't do things the way we want. We'll turn our back on him when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we'd like him to. And how many of us really understand that Jesus is God? I pray that through this study, you'll come to a deeper understanding, not only of who Jesus is, but that it'll change how you walk with him and you'll trust him because he's good and he's proven it. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. What? The Lord is our righteousness. There's another hint at the fact that he's God. He's God. Go to Revelation chapter 19. We saw in the prophecy that this one coming from Jesse, coming from David, is going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, look at verses 11 through 16. By the way, this is when he comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth. The kingdom of God that Matthew's going to be talking about. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Does that sound familiar? Has anybody noticed all the prophecies have been talking about how he's going to make war, and he's going to deal in righteousness? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes back, is he going to come back in the way he came the first time? Remember, Matthew, as we've been talking about, is going to be showing throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one who's going to come and set up his kingdom. Don't miss the fact that when he comes back to set up his kingdom, this is how he's coming back. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready for that day when you will be taken as his bride and you'll stand at the Bema seat and judged 
according to what you've done since your salvation, whether good or worthless? Are you ready to meet Jesus for who He really is, not who you've created Him to be? Yes, Jesus is the Christ. He's from Abraham. He's from David. But when we say He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One, He's God Himself who's going to run one day rule this whole world. We're going to close tonight with Luke 22. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 66 through 71. Luke 22, starting in verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. By the way, does anybody know what this day is? This is the day of crucifixion. They led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you whether I am, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Was Jesus right when he said, if I answer, you won't believe? And if I ask you, you won't answer? He said, from now on, the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father in power. So you're the Son of God then? You said it. What else do we have to hear? He's just blasphemed. He just called himself God. They didn't believe. So why, there's many, many reasons to this, but why is Matthew writing to Jewish believers that he is the Christ? Because they would understand that he's God. And I want that for you and me. Because I'll be honest with you, I know it. But do I know it? You understand what I'm saying? By the way, those who are listening online, I pointed my head the first time, my heart the second time. Folks, listen closely. Daily, we're going to have to lay our flesh on the altar. Because daily, when we get up, we want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. We want to determine whether or not we have cancer or don't have cancer. We want to determine whether or not someone lives or someone dies. We want to determine whether we get the job or don't get the job. We want to determine whether or not we get to marry that person or we don't get to marry that person. We want to be the Lord of our lives. We want to do what we want to do. Or we want you, Jesus, because we need you to die for us. And thank God you died for me. And I'm so glad you're my Savior. And I'll sing and praise you because you died for my sins. And one day, I'm going to be with you in heaven. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. But until now, I mean, until then, I want to tell you how things are to be. Are you willing to lay that down and say Jesus is the Christ? Because when you say Jesus is the Christ, you may not realize it. You're saying Jesus is God, and he gets to call the shots. 
Oh, there's nothing wrong with asking him for stuff. There's nothing wrong with asking him to marry so-and-so. There's nothing wrong with asking him to take away the cancer. There's no, nothing wrong with asking him to take away the pain. There's nothing wrong. But are you willing to say, if he chooses to, I'll praise him, and if he chooses not to, I'll praise him because that is best? Or are you going to give up because he didn't act like you wanted him to? You don't understand that Jesus is the Christ. You don't understand that Jesus is the promised one. You see how we need this? We need this. Don't get too scared. Next week we're actually going to cover, hopefully, all the way till verse 17. But maybe not, but we'll try. <laughs> Until then, I love you. We'll see you next week.